0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Mark Klobis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with Anthony Caldellas about his new study of Byzantium during the 10th and 11th centuries, entitled Streams of Gold, Rivers of Blood. Anthony, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you today. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself.
1: Yes, of course. Uh, So I was um, born in Athens, Greece, in 1971, during the dictatorship. Um, my mother is American. My father is Greek. So I grew up bilingual in Athens. And I moved to the United States for college. Uh, so at the age of 18, I went to the University of Michigan, uh, where I also finished my doctorate in history, at which point I was hired by Ohio State and the de- Department of Classics, where I have been uh, ever since. That was 17 years ago.
0: <laughs> what was it that drew you into uh, Byzantine history?
1: Well, um, it it took me a a long time to get to, first of all, to the humanities, and then to history. I started out as a physicist. That's what I came to study um, in the U.S. But um, my interest in Byzantium was the end of a process of of philosophical investigation. I was interested in how Greek philosophy, ancient Greek philosophy, how Roman politics and Roman government and Christianity all kind of combined in in Western history, and I found Byzantium as the perfect crucible for studying those three things. This is a civilization that is the Roman Empire; it's the continuation of the ancient Roman Empire. Its its predominant language was Greek. Its literature is in Greek, and it was also a Christian Orthodox society. So it's, a, it's just a perfect laboratory for studying. Um, the history of those three constituent elements of um, our civilization.
0: How did you come to write this book in particular?
1: Well, this book is a narrative history of Byzantium in the late 10th and 11th century. Uh, And I have not yet written a narrative history, and I thought it would be an interesting challenge. Um, So there are methodological issues. So, for example, how do you write a narrative history? That's something that had been preoccupying me for some time. But also the period itself is, uh, I think, very important. It's a it's a pivotal period in Byzantine history. Um, I think, in many respects, more important than, than others. And it's also a pivotal history in 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 the in world history. Uh, so, uh, including the Near East and and Europe. Um, I, I can explain to you a little bit about where I see this period sitting uh, within the broader framework of world history. If you'd like, uh, please do. Um, so, uh, one way in which I, I teach uh, ancient and medieval history to students is, I mean, very generally, right, very schematically, is um, as a, a sort of the, the heirs of the ancient Roman Empire. So, when the Roman Empire broke up, one of its pieces remained intact, um, and that was Byzantium. That would continue in direct continuity with the ancient empire to the 15th century. The other two pieces are sort of Western Europe— where the Franks dominated initially, and the Catholic Church, and the Muslim world, uh, which was the heir both of the Eastern Roman Empire and of the Persian world of antiquity. And this is, a, this is a nice framework for studying both ancient history and medieval history. So what happens in the 10th and 11th century is that in the 10th century, the Byzantine Empire is emerges as one of the most powerful dominant states uh, certainly in the Christian world, but also over its Muslim neighbors. Uh, the the, the um, Carolingian Empire has fallen apart. Um, there's kind of chaos in the West. And also the Islamic Caliphate has fallen apart, sort of fragmented into pieces. And Byzantium emerges as poised to dominate both East and West. And it does so, uh, very dramatically and successfully. And then, by the end of the 11th century, it has been reduced to the status of a second-rate power, or at any rate, a... Equivalent And what's happened is that new powers have risen in the West that begin to expand again into Spain, into southern Italy and Sicily, and with the Crusades into the Levant. And also the Seljuk Turks in the East have come onto the scene and they reinvigorate the world of Islam. And, and the Turks, you know, end up, you know, carrying the, the banner of Islam into the Ottoman Empire all the way to Vienna. And so it's this... this 11th century is this pivotal period where Byzantium, one of the three heirs of Rome, gets squeezed out. It gets squeezed between the West, the Byzantines called them the Franks or the Latins, and the East. Um, These are the Turks, mostly. And so I wanted to study this period uh, in focus. You describe this book as a narrative history, and yet
0: that Phrase might understate the degree to which you're arguing. You're making a different argument for this period than some previous Byzantine historians have. You argue that the Byzantine Empire has been, to some degree, misunderstood during these decades. I was wondering if you could explain the ways in which it was and, and how you're arguing we need it needs to be seen instead.
1: Well, certainly, a narrative history needs to do more than just reconstruct the fact to the events. And, and I try to do that in the book. That was actually one of its major goals because there hasn't been a detailed narrative history of this period for 120 years or so. Um, so I needed to be done again, but a good narrative history should do more than that, right? It should present an argument for, for um, what's happening, for why these events happened and the kind of framework in which they happen. And that's where we get into issues of interpretation. So, uh, the book presents a new argument about both the rise of Byzantine power in the 10th and early 11th century and the ways in which it crumbled and fragmented during the 11th, why it proved to be so vulnerable um, when new enemies emerged, uh, specifically the Normans in Italy and the Turks in the East, or primarily those. Um, so what I wanted to find out were the sources of Byzantine power Power, state power in particular, and their limits, their, their limitations. That is, what is it that the emperors could do, um, and where did their power fail, and what were they, what were their vulnerabilities? And and here, yes, I make a new argument uh, about this period in a nutshell. This period has been viewed as one of struggle between the more centralized state elements um, of Byzantium, uh, sort of focused on Constantinople, the capital city, and the institutions of government, uh, such as taxation and uh, the courts and the church and so on, um, And on the one hand. And on the other hand, a kind of quasi-feudal aristocracy of military magnates in Asia Minor or or Anatolia who are supposed to have been waging some kind of class warfare to promote the interests of their socioeconomic class, namely that of landowners. And the the civil wars of this period were understood within that framework. Um, I did not find that there's sufficient evidence for this framework. And, and it I might even say that there was any evidence for it. Um, I saw that those tensions in a very different way. Um, and I I didn't find the evidence linking uh military leadership to landowning interests. That that was the crucial link that I I, I had to break to write the the narrative as I s as I saw the events unfold. That
0: gets to Something I think is very important, which is how Byzantium, while in many ways a part of the West during this period, is not, does not have the same structures that you see in, say, medieval France, medieval Germany, uh, Anglo-Saxon, Norman England. I was wondering if you could explain a bit what Byzantium was like in the 10th century on the, at, the, at the start of this period of that you studied in, ni- in the 950s?
1: Of course. Uh, so for, for listeners who are more familiar with Western medieval Europe, I would say that the major differences are that Byzantium, is a, um, compared to anything in the West, is a m- much more unified state in terms of its institutions and infrastructure, but also its public ideology about power. Um, in other words, um, there, are the, the, there, there is a, there's a state. It's a fairly well-developed and sophisticated one. Um, it mobilizes uh, many thousands of people in all kinds of different areas, administrative, fiscal, military. It, it's hierarchical in that these institutions are under the control of, um, you know, of, of leaders who are appointed by the court and ultimately the emperor, um, and it's, it's not fragmented into regional state, mini states or territories under the control of, you know, hereditary family rule or anything like that. The emperor is not engaged in internal diplomacy in order to get things done with people who have local, you know, established and entrenched local power. But rather he orders his magistrates to carry out order X, Y and Z. Um so it, it, it's very different in that respect. it It also has a very a much more developed capacity for raising revenue through taxation, uh, which is then used to support a standing army. Um, it, so it, it, to that degree, Byzantium is more reminiscent of the of the modern state, and many historians have found that comparison to be um, valuable up to a point, uh, obviously. Um, but compared to Western, um, states at this time, or dynastic principalities, uh, Byzantium is much more uh, unified, centralized, and bureaucratized.
0: And you stress that there is no land-owning aristocracy that is a significant political force during this period, that power to the degree that it's held by people other than the emperor, stem from their positions in the Byzant- Byzantine state, and not from any sort of independent uh, base or, or, or independent armies that they might possess.
1: That seems to be the case. Now, there is a sort of, if not an aristocracy, it, there's there's no hereditary aristocracy in Byzantium. There are no families entitled to various positions or, you know, uh, ranks or titles or anything like that. It's all bestowed by the court on a sort of ad hoc basis. Uh, now, obviously, there is an elite, and the elite it, is wealthy and is wealthy largely because of its wealth. I'm not denying any of that. What's in question is whether the the political contests that we see play out uh, were about um, um, land and uh, access to, um, um, or rather the, the willingness of a kind of landowning elite to exempt itself from the state structure this This never happened um as far as I can tell, so yes there there is no aristocracy that has um local power to the point of having its own local armies or local forts or anything like that. There were no private forts, there are no private armies in Byzantium um generals had their retinues um but they were only generals when they were appointed to that position by the court so power. And even wealth, in fact, seems to flow primarily from court positions um, or, or positions within the bureaucracy and the hierarchy. Um, and these you were appointed to by the emperor ultimately. Once you were removed from those positions, it was almost impossible to um, you know, muster enough resources or support to uh, challenge the emperor, uh, which happened fairly often. So the emperors are always being challenged, but they're being challenged by people within the system, not from people outside of it who want to restructure the socioeconomic order of the empire.
0: Now, as you explained at the beginning of the book, what distinguishes this period from the period before is that Byzantium becomes much more of an offensive power. Now, I was wondering if you could explain uh, the nature of Byzantine power in the region prior to the 950s and why the change is so significant.
1: Prior to 950, um, Byzantium had made some acquisitions um, at the expense of um, some of its uh, Muslim neighbors in the east and uh, some of the quasi independent Slavic um, populations that had occupied the Balkans. It, it had expanded. Uh, but for centuries, it was primarily a defensive power. Uh, so what we call Byzantium um, in, the, in this period um, after the Arab conquests is what's left of the Roman Empire, right, in, in um, Asia Minor or modern Turkey and the Balkans um, after the um, Arab uh, conquests had removed you know, Egypt and Palestine and Syria. And so it had been very defensively oriented for a number of centuries. And it, it used its institutions to defend itself, especially the army, which was the single major expense of the um, government budget. But it had also deployed various mechanisms of what today we might call soft power, um, in order to maintain a kind of primacy among its, its, um, it's, especially its Christian, um, neighbors to the north and east and west, sorry. Um, and um, and this included its ability to generate revenue, which I mentioned earlier, uh, which surpassed that of its of its neighbors and, and peers. And it used that wealth in order to buy support, um, not only wealth in terms of cash, but also um, silk, um, other um, uh, sort of technologies of power, symbols crowns and things like this that it would export and along with titles it would grant titles to the um, today we might call them chieftains or even smaller kings on its periphery those titles had cash salaries attached to them and those cash salaries were, were probably generated more cash for the the recipients um, than their own internal you know tributary or tax collecting might generate so they were very coveted. And so, so Byzantium managed to successfully position itself as the kind of arbiter of what you know, monarchical power looks like in its most prestigious form. Uh, it, it was emulated throughout um, the Christian world. And so it, it used a combination of, this, of, of defensive warfare primarily and projecting its prestige through these instruments – um, that, that's largely how Byzantium was positioned before 950. Um, th- as I said, it had made, it had already begun to make some conquests. Um, specifically some, it had eliminated some smaller Muslim emirates in the east. Uh, but in 950, its orientation, its approach changed pretty dramatically in some respects. And I'll mention two of them specifically. It went on the offensive in the south. East, So against the Emirates and Cilicia and specifically Aleppo and sought to um, basically downgrade them or c- conquer them and annex part of them, such as Cilicia, um, or reduce them to the status of, of um, a client state, which it did to Aleppo. Um, and eventually it also went on the offensive against Bulgaria, the major Christian neighboring empire in the Balkans, and conquered that too. Uh, so this, this was a pretty dramatic shift.
0: And yet those were just two of the regions that you describe in which these battles unfold. You also talk about, for example, the the, uh, conquest or reconquest of Crete. You talk about what's happening in southern Italy. And it really conveys something of the scope of the empire to see all of these different fronts in which you have these emperors engaging uh, in various campaigns, either to shore up frontiers or to expand them.
1: Yes, uh, Crete was another one of these emirates um, that was conquered, um, and and those conquests were part of a, a plan. I think of, of initial conquests that lasted about fifteen years. So from nine fifty five to about nine seventy seventy one, um, the the Byzantines executed a, a plan of very systematic uh, aggression, uh, which involved considerable destruction. Um, In the areas that they conquered, with the explicit goal of conquering these areas. Now, this is a shift from the past because in the past there was this pattern of raid and counter-raid, with no particular invasion leading to a permanent conquest or annexation uh, most of the time. That pattern was broken in 955 when the emperor, this is Constantine VII Porphyrogenitus. He appointed as commander of the army um, Nicephorus Phocas, a leading general who would later go on and become emperor himself. And that appointment came apparently with a plan to eliminate uh, uh, these Muslim emirates in the east and reduce Aleppo um, as, as far as could not to conquer it. The, the Byzantines had opportunities to conquer Aleppo. In fact, they took the city a couple of times. Um, But I don't think they wanted it. That wasn't the point. Um, So in other words, absorbing major Muslim population centers that were exposed to attack from Mesopotamia. This was never part of the plan. Um, They had a strategic plan that involved Crete, Cyprus, Cilicia, uh, and other territories in the east and the Taurus Mountains. And then they stopped. And once they accomplished that goal in those 15 years, then they stopped. And, and then they returned to a more defensive uh, posture.
0: But that was only in the southeast, correct? Did they continue uh, they continued their expansions in, in, in other
1: areas? Correct. So another area where they expanded was in the Caucasus. Uh, so this is um, at the expense of Armenian and Georgian principalities. But here, the expansion took on a very different form. Um, it wasn't... Necessarily, it wasn't primarily direct conquest. Like we're going to send an army and conquer these areas, Uh, but rather, what happened was that some of the local princes there, Armenian princes, they had you know much smaller territories. Think maybe Crete or Cyprus-sized territories in the Caucasus area. Um, They abdicated and basically gave their principalities to the empire in exchange personally for titles, salaries, ranks, and opportunities uh, within the empire. So there were, there were those kinds of annexations. In addition, um, some other um, – there's a Georgian uh, prince who uh, sided with the wrong uh, – he, he side in a Byzantine civil war, and his side lost, and the emperor said, okay, <laughs> well, um, here's what's going to happen you can keep your territory for now, but when you die, I'm going to be your heir and I'm going to annex it. Um, And true enough, you know, 10, 12 years later, he died and the emperor moved in and annexed the territory, having prepared for that annexation in advance. So by creating a a class of local dignitaries with Byzantine titles who would be able to rule there on Byzantine behalf. So there were annexations in that direction as well, uh, but they weren't, celebrated as conquests, right? So I don't think, for example, that any triumph was celebrated in Constantinople over the Georgian-Armenian principalities. They were just simply annexed as bureaucratic actions.
0: And as you explained, the cumulative effect of this strategy that you've outlined here is to change the geographic focus of the empire, if you will. How you're talking about primarily a Asian empire prior to the 10th century and how this focus, this stabilization of the Southeastern border and this focus on conquest or, or absorption of Christian territories to the Northeast and the Northwest and, and the West makes it a, a part of a very different uh, geographical focus, doesn't it?
1: Exactly. The empire in the 11th century basically flips its geographical orientation. So before this period, its base, like the heartland of the Byzantine Empire, was Asia Minor, even though its capital, Constantinople, is on the other side of the Straits of the Bosporus. Uh, the, the, the empire only controlled uh, strips of territory in the Balkans and so, and southern Greece, but these were minor in comparison to the whole of Asia Minor. In the early 11th century, when the Emperor Basil II conquers all of Bulgaria, uh, and that means all the way up to the Danube and into the southern reaches of the former Yugoslavia, right? So to the Adriatic and strengthening the Byzantine hold in southern Italy as well. Um, then suddenly the empire becomes uh, kind of balanced between Asia Minor and the Balkans, kind of have, you know, roughly equal territory on both sides. And then during the 11th century and the Byzantine collapse uh, during that century – They lose most of Asia Minor, and so the Byzantine Empire exits the 11th century as a predominantly Balkan state, and it would remain that for most of its remaining history. So down to the 15th century, it it was primarily based in uh, so Constantinople, looking west to Thrace, Macedonia, Greece, and those lands. Asia Minor came and went. There are periods when they had more of a presence there and less, but in, after the 11th century it's a it's a predominant the the momentum is on the uh, side of the turks
0: i was wondering if you could describe some of the emperors who were key to this process you've already mentioned uh three of them there was Constantine the seventh there was uh Nick, Nick Forrest, uh there was basil who were these people and in what ways did they determine and shape
1: this policy in what ways did they leave their imprint upon the empire through this process. So most of the period covered in the book um, lies under the shadow of what's called the Macedonian dynasty. So this was a dynasty founded in the 9th century that peters out during the 11th century. And um, it's called the Macedonian dynasty because its founder, Basil the first was from Macedonia. And so Constantine the seventh, whom I mentioned was uh, Basil the First's um, grandson, and and the dynasty continued on into the 11th century. But here's the catch: a dynasty in Byzantium until this point is a fairly provisional state of affairs. In other words, there, there's no family that has the right to rule. It's it's very unlike uh, the Ottoman Empire or or you know the, the Japanese Empire, something like that. Uh, dynasties survive when there is sufficient support for them within the, the body politic. The Macedonian dynasty was fairly successful, but it went through phases of having child emperors. The emperor would die and his heirs would be children. Uh, this happened a few times and at that point those heirs were considered you know, eventual rulers, but in the meantime someone else was needed uh, to you know exercise a more you know hands-on dynamic, control of the state. And this is where certain generals stepped in. So Nicephorus Phocas, I mentioned, he was the general behind the plan of conquest in the southeast. He stepped in as emperor for a while. Then his nephew stepped in. This is John Simiskis, uh, for a few years. By that point, the Macedonian heir to the throne, this is Basil II, had matured, and he then became the emperor, though he faced rivals from within the military establishment. That dynasty gradually. So Basil II is a very interesting, extraordinary figure, in fact. Uh, He was emperor for 50 years. This is the longest reign of any Roman emperor in in the 1500 years of the empire's existence. For 50 years, um, never married, uh, never produced an heir, never tried to. Um, Though he had a brother, and when he died, the, the throne passed to his brother, though he only had about three years to live. And Basil II faced some very significant military rebellions in the first part of his reign, which left him forever suspicious of the army and of generals and so on. And, and he decided after he successfully suppressed the revolt, the revolts, that he would, go, you know, command the army in person um, himself in this long war against Bulgaria. Um, I think that he, he he gave very small armies to his regional commanders, uh, say over in the east, so that they barely had enough um, sufficient soldiers to defend the empire there, and when they would get into trouble, he would run over with a large army. Anyway, he spent most of his life on campaign, fighting against Bulgaria. This is This was one way that he managed to keep the army loyal to him, was simply being with it, in command of it, and, and using it. Uh, so he's an extraordinary figure. Um, after him and his brother, then the dynasty basically devolves to the brother, this Constantine VIII's daughters, um, specifically his daughter Zoe. And Zoe lives on until the mid-11th century, then her sister Theodora Uh, has another year where she's reigning in her own name. This is the second time when the empire is governed by a woman in her own name. Like she's not looking for a husband. She's not, you know, uh, planning on marrying. And so the dynasty basically ends in 1055, 1056. uh, And, and that precipitates a sort of political chaos because by that point, things had changed significantly. And, um, there was a competition for the throne, but but the the, the empire's geopolitical situation had changed by the mid 11th century uh, that that exacerbated those political tensions.
0: As you explain, though, it's not just about the emperors; it's that you also have around them a collection of eunuchs and generals who oftentimes carry forward these policies. Because one of the things that really stood out is the degree to which the advisors and and, and uh, staff, if you will, of that you see in the 1950s really continue to exert influence and and help shape policy well into the eleventh century.
1: Yes, there there's some generations that really <laughs> stick around. Um so what you mentioned is actually an interesting point, and that is uh, one of the uh, questions that preoccupied me as I was researching this book, uh, which was how exactly do emperors govern um, You know, beyond the institutions? That the, the institutions of governance sort of carry on. They're humming in the background most of the time. E- even in times of crisis, um, when there's you know murder and intrigue and chaos at the court, the institutions are going to keep carrying on for quite some time without necessarily someone being at the helm. At some point, they're going to need someone to, to be there. Um, but I was interested in the the, the, the kind of prosopography that is, who, who do the emperors pick to, you know, govern through, right? And here's where I realized that emperors are making their choices based on their own perceived vulnerabilities. And emperors are always vulnerable. Uh, in Byzantium, uh, they they always have to make sure that they have a lot of support, that that they're very popular, or else they can be overthrown, and they can be overthrown in a number of ways. They can be overthrown in uh, mass popular uprisings in Constantinople. This happens a few times. So if they are if they become unpopular with the people of Constantinople, who at this point are numbering maybe around a couple hundred thousand people, is one of the largest cities in 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 the world, certainly in the Christian world. Um, and they rise up and storm the palace. Ah, You're finished. There's not much you can do about that. They can be overthrown in a palace coup. Uh, so this could be just maybe, you know, half a dozen, uh, you know, armed men <laughs> break into the palace. And if they manage to assassinate the emperor, um, they can try to claim the throne. This happens uh, quite a few times in Byzantine history. Uh, the, the question then is, of course, will they be accepted? It's not enough to just break into the palace and kill the emperor. What are you going to do then? I mean, you have to have someone credible to claim the throne. They can also be overthrown um, in uh, through a military rebellion. This is very common in Byzantium. So here you are. You're at the head of this newly resurgent empire, right? You're making all these conquests. You have the most powerful armies around, and you're sending them left and right. Okay, but this also contains within it a serious challenge to yourself is to whom do you entrust these armies this is a major problem because anyone you give so so you can give the armies uh you can give command of the armies to two types of people let's say competent people and incompetent people and they both have problems so a competent general is going to you know uh, conquer and he's going to win and he's going to become popular and suddenly, look, he's a possible contender for the throne. Some people might be saying, well, you know, if you ever decide, you know, these kinds of intrigues and conversations are going on all the time in Byzantium. On the other hand, an incompetent general is going to, uh, you know, cause you other kinds of problems through the obvious ways. Um, so the emperors are having to weigh these options all the time and one solution to the problem is for the emperor himself to be uh, a competent general who is in command of the armies, like Nicephorus focus and John Sumisky's, and the way in which Basil II reinvents himself um, after the civil wars as uh, a, a campaigning emperor. Right? So that, That's one way to solve that, just keep the army with you and keep it busy. Um, another way is to um, find someone you trust, OK, um, that's that's hard to do, but it, it could be done. Um, and a third way is to give the armies to a eunuch from your household. Uh, Byzantium has many eunuchs. Many of them are very competent men. Uh, and however, they cannot seize the throne. And because eunuchs were often made um, abroad, they're their, their sort of import they're sold perhaps or imported into the empire as children. They're attached to the households of powerful men. They grow up within that household. So they're kind of attached, personally attached to um to members of the aristocracy or the the the, the, the generals and and so you know they could be trusted in these roles. They don't have family, they don't have obviously they're not going to start a dynasty. And they can't take the throne themselves. Um, And so we find that increasingly emperors who are not themselves generals start giving more and more military commands to eunuchs as a a a way of self-defense. And some of these eunuchs are quite capable. So Byzantium produced a series of very capable eunuch generals.
0: So if the policy of eunuchs was not in itself necessarily a bad one, what were the factors that led to the decline of this aggressive Byzantium in the
1: 11th century? Well, primarily the empire had reached the limits of feasible expansion. In other words, in the east, further expansion would simply bring in more Muslim populations, which they did not want. Um, Even conquering Cilicia entailed... You know, mass killing and expul- expulsion of Muslims. It was not pretty. Um, and, or uh, forcing them to convert to Christianity. So, you know, there was a serious demographic adjustment that took place there. Um, beyond that, you re- were talking about going into Azerbaijan. They had no interest in that. Um, or into Mesopotamia, which, you know, you're just exposed to um, uh, Baghdad. So, that was one uh, element, and the same is true in the West. they're not going to expand into what became Serbia and Croatia and so on. What happened in the eleventh century uh, was simply put uh, there were the the sudden appearance of three new enemies practicing new or distinct modes of warfare simultaneously and this this was a major problem for the Roman Empire and All of its history. That is, the the Roman Empire was pretty good at facing off an enemy on one front. Okay, competent with two active fronts at the same time. It could pull through, but three was uh, always too much. And the three I'm talking about are the Normans in southern Italy, the Pechenegs in the Danube, the, the the lower Danube area, so where the Danube hits the Black Sea and the Seljuk Turks in the East. Uh, the, the, the Norman... Now, I think that any one of those could have been handled if it were the only one, but they all converged at the same time, and and not through any coordination. This was just part of a general shift that was taking place as part of resurgent um, Latin Europe in the West and the revitalization of the Islamic world that the um, that the Turks um, um uh, inaugurated in the 11th century. And so the Normans it, so in order to fa- so and and so the 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 Byzantine state had a set of priorities. So first it would defend the capital, then it would defend the east, and third it would defend uh its southern Italy. So southern Italy was almost always put on the back burner if there were problems closer at hand. So by 1050 uh the Normans uh, were, had basically overrun southern Italy through what you might call, I mean, easily call terrorism. I mean, they were pretty brutal about it. Um, the Pechenegs had been mostly contained uh, after a, a many, many years of war in the Balkans. Um, and the Seljuk Turks were still a kind of unknown quantity. That is, it wasn't clear whether they were interested in conquering Asia Minor. Or whether they'd be back, they they would launch these major raids um, that were very destructive, but then leave. So so it's a very unsettled situation, and the Byzantines are realizing that their military is uh, you know the top priority. Uh, that that there's going to be trouble. They know this, but at the same time, they have gotten themselves into a bit of a, a fiscal pickle. <laughs> Uh, so the court has, in the decades of sort of peace and prosperity, because this is a time of general economic growth uh, for for Byzantium, um, it has overspent. And so it finds itself, Byzantium finds itself in the 11th century with a kind of dynastic crisis. So the, this one dynasty is petering out. Everyone's expecting it to die off the as Zoe and Theodora don't have children, they're going to die eventually, and what do we do then? So that's one factor. We've got three new enemies that are threatening us on three fronts, um, and they're so it's an uncertain situation, and we're running a deficit. Well, they can't run a deficit as such. Um I mean, not really, but they're spending more than they um than they can afford. And so those three trends come together in the mid eleventh century.
0: You describe the, this very dramatic series of events that leads to uh, a collapse that takes place in the uh, 1070s, and you conclude with the First Crusade. Now, the First Crusade is an event about which there has been an enormous amount written, but it's so much of what we get uh, today is primarily from that Western perspective. And, and, and you have the reader reconsider it from the Byzantine perspective, and it, and it and it plays into this arc that you've described uh, over the course of the book. And I was wondering if, if you could elaborate upon that a little bit.
1: Yes. So the chapter on the on the first Crusade is um, it's it's a it's a new history of the first Crusade from a, from a Byzantine perspective. Um, and so let me just say that uh, the, yes. So scholarship on the first Crusade and the Crusades in general is. Overwhelmingly, uh, sort of Eurocentric, is sort a of Western-centric. Um, in some cases, so you read a lot of books written by, uh, you know, excellent historians who know their material, but they don't know the Eastern material. They say incredible things about what's going on in the East, or they, they, anyway. And the problem with the Byzantine perspective is that it is um, badly represented by a single source. Um, this is. Um, the Imperial Princess Anna uh, Komnena or Anna Comnena, in the 12th century. So she wrote um, a, a very laudatory biography of her father, Alexius. It's called the Alexiad. Um, it, it's a wonderful text. It's it's uh, as a narrative, it's excellent narrative. Um, she's a very good historian. Uh, but when it came to the first Crusade, uh, the picture that she presents is probably very misleading now th- th- there's a lot that's misleading in her work and not only hers but the work of every Byzantine historian she's no different in this regard um, it's just very political um, and she has a specific you know literary purpose um, and her she presents the First Crusade as a total surprise for her father, the emperor at the time, Alexius this, this It was just announced to him that, well, look, all these armies are coming through and what are you going to do? Um, that is almost certainly not the case. Uh, so in other words, he wasn't reacting to the presence of the crusaders. He it's it's almost certain that he knew well in advance that they were coming and had prepared for it. In fact, they were part of an army that he had hoped would come. Now, I I therefore had to reconstruct the Byzantine approach to the First Crusade um, again. And what I wanted to do specifically was to um, use the First Crusade, so the passage of the First Crusade through the Balkans and Asia Minor, as a way of replaying a lot of the history of the 11th century that the book had just narrated, in the sense that the crusading army plus its Byzantine handlers – are, in fact, revisiting many of the sites uh, that were important in the military history of the empire before. And their movements, objectives, and the patterns of behavior fall into very identifiable Byzantine um, mold. You can see how this army is behaving in many ways as a Byzantine army under Byzantine control and is doing very Byzantine things. And specifically, I believe that the the crusading, the crusaders, remember, the crusaders never, the crusade, the armies of the First Crusade never fully assembled into one army until they had actually reached Nicaea, which is in Asia across, you know, across the Bosphorus from Constantinople. Um, that, that's when they were first assembled into one army. And, and the process by which they were assembled um, after they had, variously marched through the the, the Balkans, entered Constantinople, crossed over. That was all handled by the Byzantine emperor. And I think that from that point on, it functioned as a Byzantine army, doing Byzantine things, carrying out Byzantine objectives. Um, I I think that's fairly clear, and I try to argue that in the book. Uh, It was only after the Siege of Antioch, so much, much later, Um, And the miscommunication that took place. uh, um, So the emperor who was on his way to Antioch was misinformed about what had happened at Antioch. He was told that the army had suffered a catastrophic defeat. and There's no point for him to move forward. Um, It was only after that point that the armies of the First Crusade ceased to function as a Byzantine army and became something else. But what they had done in the meantime, uh, until they reached Antioch, was exactly to restore Byzantine control to the territories that they marched through. And they did so. They were under Byzantine orders. In fact, even their route through Asia Minor makes no sense if you think their objective is simply to go to Jerusalem. Um, And they were coordinating with Byzantine armies along the whole way. Well, this story simply cannot – it should not be told. Um, simply by focusing on these Western French knights, um, you know, marching through this, you know, uh, obscure, unknowable foreign terrain uh, during the longest part of their march. The longest part of their march was through Byzantine territory, right? By far, right? And, and they were doing so, you know, explicitly under uh, Byzantine orders, um, and and pursuing Byzantine objectives in coordination with Byzantine armies that were doing other things all around them that were part of the same plan. So this was my attempt to reconstruct what the original plan was, the more inclusive one, um, that uh, factored in the objectives of the Byzantine emperor who was actually in charge of the, the whole time.
0: Objectives which reflected the trends in policy that had That dated back roughly a century and a half by this point.
1: Exactly. Yes. Um, So part of it was to so so the the Western Crusaders were assigned the task of you know clearing out as some of Western and Central Asia Minor of the Turks and reconnecting the imperial authorities in Constantinople to their local representatives in some of the Eastern. Um, cities that had been Byzantine provinces, like, you know, in Cappadocia and Edessa and Cilicia and so on. And that is exactly what they do. They march through these territories. They're defeating the Turkish armies and handing over those territories to representatives of the emperor all the way, all the way to Antioch. They continue to do this all the way into Antioch. And it was even, there was even debate about doing that with Antioch, which had been a, a city under Byzantine control for a century. Um, Uh, for over a century. And it was only when they decided, well, they didn't decide, but events brought it about that Antioch fell into the hands of one of these crusaders who wanted to keep it for himself. Okay. And that's where the, what we call the first crusade ceases to operate under Byzantine control. But up until that point, they were doing what the emperor wanted them to do. Remember, they had no choice there. This is how they're feeding themselves, they're being supplied by the Navy, Byzantine Navy, Um, their guides are all Byzantines, the plans are all Byzantine, and so on.
0: Well, they never had anything like that sort of extended expedition in their history. They were very much dependent upon the Byzantines for what we would nowadays call logistical support.
1: Yes, and many of the leaders of the of, the First Crusade had either themselves they they had either had gone on pilgrimage or had gone to the east at some point in the past um not with an army obviously um or their ancestors had and so the, you know there were people who had contacts in the in um you know family history in the Byzantine empire at the time of its maximum power um they would have naturally seen the Byzantine state as well, in fact, we know even from the accounts of the first crusade how odd they were by its wealth and its logistical capabilities. Um, you know, despite the fact that the, the historiography that they produced later was generally, um, often hostile to the Byzantines for reasons that, you know, came along later, but, um, th- they were very impressed by it. There, there's no way that they would have thought that they're just going to march through Byzantine territory on their own, doing their own thing. And, you know, no. Um, So the chapter at the end of the book is an attempt to see how, to the degree to which the history of the first crusade is a Byzantine history. Well,
0: we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us about uh, some of the projects you're working on now? Uh, For example, this is uh, the book that uh, we've just uh, been discussing is not your only, the only book that you have coming out this year.
1: Yes. So the, this book, um, Streams of Gold, um, came out ju- just during the summer, I think, just um, a few couple months ago or something. Um, at the same time, also by Oxford University Press, um, publishing um, a, a quirky little thing called The Cabinet of Byzantine Curiosities. Um, this is something completely different. Um, it is a part of what we might call a series by now of Oxford books. There's one on, on Greek curiosities. There's one on Roman curiosities. Um, so I was asked to do the Byzantine one. Um, and these are uh, – it's just entertaining, fun read. Um, I wouldn't dignify it with the name of, sort of scholarship. Uh, but it's um, a collection of amusing anecdotes, uh, sayings, short stories – Interesting trivia facts, uh, more shocking things from the whole history of Byzantium from beginning to end, organized in various categories. Uh, So it's about you know sex and marriage and eunuchs and foreigners and food and animals. Um, And uh, it's uh, yeah, I mean, it's I I hope readers find it fun. It's a different side of Byzantium than what the narrative book uh, shows.
0: Perhaps I'm being greedy here but do you have any uh new projects that are uh forthcoming or are you taking a a break while uh, you you've after having finished up these two uh so closely back to back
1: Take a break no no <laughs> <laughs> Um I don't know what I would do There's a I'm um, I'm the co-editor of a very very large volume that's called the Cambridge Intellectual History Byzantium and this is something that my co-editor uh, Nikita Siniosoglu and I have been working on for some time um, if I can uh, apologize here to all the contributors, I think some 40 of them um, who have been waiting for us to try to dock this aircraft carrier that's what it feel, felt like uh, but that should be coming out soon we just finished the proof so this is uh, covers major areas of Byzantine intellectual life uh but the, i personally have written very little very very little of that no so in terms of what i'm writing the book i'm working on now um is uh has a tentative title of uh, ethnicity and empire in byzantium um and in some respects it emerges out of the narrative uh, history that we've been talking about um, and what i've tried to do is to um take um Comparative and modern discussions of empire uh, that, uh, by the way, we're now living in an age of of heightened interest in empire among historians and scholars. I've even seen the expression, the imperial turn that we're living in. So, yes, so there are a lot of books being published on empire um, as a kind of conceptual problem. And to to what I what I wanted to ascertain is the degree to which Byzantium in this period, like tenth and eleventh century, that, let's say the the classical high point of of, of Byzantium in its uh, quote unquote medieval phase, to what degree is it an empire um, understood as the, the empire as the the a rule by one group a, a rule normally established through conquest of a number of other groups that are perceived to be different, whether in ethnicity or religion. And uh, because we use the term Byzantine Empire, we call it empire. Um, uh, well, you, you probably heard the the joke that Voltaire said about the Holy Roman Empire. It was neither holy nor Roman nor an empire. Um, and something similar can be said about the Byzantine Empire. Uh, Byzantine is obvious, is a modern name. It, it called itself the Roman Empire. Um, a state um, or Roman land is actually what the Byzantines called their state, Roman land, Romania. Why do we call it an empire? I mean, is it is it really a valid term? Um, so, um, you know, is it because they had uh, it was ruled by someone we call an emperor, and why do we call the Byzantine the ruler of Byzantium an emperor? Or is it because um, of the sort of constitution, not, not as a as a legal document? I meant the the the, the formation of this state. Um, does it reflect imperial uh, realities and priorities? It, it, can we look at the Byzantine Empire and say yes, it is the imperial rule by X people over these others? The way we can when we look at. Persian Empire, the Ottoman Empire, the early Roman Empire, the British Empire. We can say, yeah, it's these, this center of power re- representing this sort of ethnic or ethno-religious group dominating all of these others and um, maintaining this sort of diff- ethnic difference between them. Is this the case in Byzantium? And I think largely no. Uh, that's just, that's not really um, how it operated, but that's the project I'm working on now, yes. Well, it sounds like a very interesting project.
0: Uh, Anthony uh, uh thank you very much for taking some time out of your very busy schedule
1: to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you, Mark. It was a great pleasure. Hope to talk to you again.